This is Sudden Wealth Radio, the first and only broadcast that explores the financial, tax, legal, and psychological issues of Sudden Wealth. Your host, Robert Pagliarini, is the nation's leading Sudden Wealth financial advisor who has earned a national reputation for working with clients who have received windfall from inheritance, divorce, lawsuit, business sale, sports entertainment contracts, stock options, and the lottery. You may have seen Robert on Dr. Phil, Good Morning America, 2020, Katie Couric, or others. And now, here's your host of Sudden Wealth Radio, Robert Pagliarini. Imagine a place where children can be taken from their parents, where someone has complete control over your assets and your future income. Imagine a place where you are judged not by a group of your peers, but by a single authority. This place exists today, and I'm not talking about North Korea or Somalia. All of these things happen every day in the United States. Ridiculous, you say? A couple of months ago, I was invited to watch a new documentary about the divorce process in the United States, and what I saw astounded me. Having spent many years providing wealth management to newly divorced women, I thought I'd seen it all, but what I saw in this documentary shocked me. I'm thrilled to have with me the director of that documentary, Joe Sorge. The name of the film is Divorce Corp, not Divorce Court. It is Divorce Corp, as in corporation, as in the business of divorce. The business of divorce? Yes, it's a $50 billion a year industry. How did it become this big? What are the problems with the current process, and what are some of the solutions? That's what we're going to discuss with Joe right now. So, Joe, thank you so much for, one, making this documentary, and secondly, for coming on and talking about it. Well, you're most welcome, and thanks for having me on your show. You bet. So, what did you hope to accomplish by making this documentary? I, I just wanted to reveal what I think is a problem in in United States and state governments. Um, you know, we... Uh, can get married for about $50 for a marriage license, and the whole thing happens in 20 minutes. Uh, but to get divorced, um, it takes uh, the average person $15,000 per side, and if it's contested, that is, if the other side doesn't cooperate and compromise, it could be $50,000, $200,000 and more. So I was wondering why a government-run uh, process uh, would be so inexpensive on one end and so expensive on the other end. And, you know, the first thought that came to my mind is, well, maybe the government, you know, wants to discourage divorce, encourage marriage and discourage divorce, which makes sense. But if that were so, there'd be a tax on, on getting divorced, and that money would go into the public treasury. But in fact, the money doesn't go to the public treasury. It goes into the pockets of relatively wealthy individuals, lawyers, custody evaluators, judges, um, and so it just didn't make sense to me, and I decided to investigate. Yeah, as a uh, as an advisor to people who are going through a divorce or who have been divorced, I can tell you that the the documentary when I watched it, uh, I, at times I was just so angry, not at you, but at, at just what you were documenting and the process that these people go through. Uh, it, it's the, the system is definitely broken. And I'm wondering, when making this, when doing the research, what have you identified as truly the, the main issues or the main problems with our current family law and divorce system? 
Well, that's a good question. I think um, you know the main problem is that we use the what's called the adversarial uh, litigation system to resolve many of these matters. Um, the adversarial system came from old England, and you know two parties that had a dispute would argue in front of the king, and the idea was to make the most compelling argument possible, uh, not sparing any. Uh, insult that you may cast at the the other side to make them look uh, unworthy. And the king enjoyed this. It was entertainment for the king to hear two people criticizing each other and um, essentially fighting with words. And that system is what our courts are based on in the United States. And I can understand it if you have two large corporations that are you know fighting over billions of dollars. I could also understand it in a criminal court where you know, the prosecutor is trying to convict someone and the defense attorney is trying to defend them. Um, but I don't understand it in the family law setting. You know, you have children involved. You have two parties who are once in love and now simply trying to separate without putting salt in the wounds. And yet our system, our government uh, endorsed system encourages people, in fact, requires them to uh, be aggressive, to uh, cast dispersions on the other side in order to win things that are essential to them, such as their children, their homes, their life savings. You can, if you don't say anything in family court and the other side provides all the evidence, you lose. Uh, the judge is supposed to weigh the evidence and the evidence, you only get things into evidence by speaking out in court or submitting documents that, um, uh, communicate what uh, what your position is. And unfortunately, because of the adversarial system and because of the way that lawyers are trained, which are, is to be zealous advocates for their clients, they bring out everything. And all it does is escalate um, a, a war of emotions between the parties. And at the end of it, um, you get financial ruin. You get people hating each other. You get people fighting over their children. And it's just uh, complete opposite of how we should be approaching um, the dissolution of a, a of a marriage. And, and so, in a perfect world, how would the dissolution of a marriage work, in your opinion? Well, in a perfect world, and and you know, uh, you can approach this two ways. One is to construct laws that uh, restrain behavior, bad behavior. You know, they say that criminal court is uh, bad people on their best behavior. And family court is good people on their worst behavior. And the reason I believe these good people are on their worst behavior is because our system encourages that worst behavior. So you could try to change the laws to prohibit bad behavior. My view, though, is there's another way to do it, and that is to take the rewards out of litigation. Right now, there are financial rewards for battling aggressively in court. Um, you can win money. Um, by battling aggressively. If you convince the judge that the other side is um, uh, you know, abusive, uh, dishonest, uh, hiding money, um, you know, whatever kind of accusations you can come up with to sway the judge to your side, the judge in some states can award you more than 50% of the assets, not in all states. But um, more important than that, the judge can, has discretion to award you streams of cash flow into the future in the form of alimony or child support that oftentimes can outweigh the magnitude of the, the joint assets. And so uh, the, the better way, I believe, is to reduce the financial rewards that are possible 
in court to amounts that are so small that they, they wouldn't justify the time expenditure and the legal fees. And to come up with a, a better way to divide the assets and to provide for people's needs into the future through processes such as mediation uh, or, or uh, kind of a collaborative divorce setting. Because as you're you're speaking of this, there in a divorce process, there are the the parties that are getting divorced, the the husband and the wife, uh, and then it's their attorneys as well. And I referenced earlier that this is a fifty billion dollar a year industry, and I'm assuming that a lot of those dollars are not necessarily flowing through to the the couple getting divorced, but it's actually going into the hands of the attorneys. Absolutely right. The $50 billion has nothing to do with the amount of money that's in, in the form of alimony or child support. Each year, there's uh, $44 billion of alimony and child support being awarded uh, from one you know, party, from one side to the other. That's not included in the $50 billion number. The $50 billion number uh, comprises uh, attorney's fees, expert witness fees, psychological evaluations, custody evaluators, guardians at litem, Amicus attorneys, minors counsel, uh, court fees, um, fees for the uh, um, the court reporter, because uh, you don't get you don't get your transcripts for free. You have to pay for them. Um, uh, you know, there's just an enormous expense in the in the lit- in the adversarial litigation process, and that money is going into the pockets of of private individuals. Uh, who do quite well. You know, the average divorce attorney uh, can charge anywhere from $150 an hour to $1,000 an hour for their time. And, you know, if we compare that to the average uh, wage of an American worker is, what, $20 an hour, $15 or $20 an hour, um, we're talking about 10 to 20 to 40 times the amount of money that the average American makes. And, you know, I don't begrudge people um, for, you know, I believe in, in uh, free enterprise and I don't begrudge them for charging um, whatever they believe that their, their time is worth, uh, provided, provided that they are not, that, that our government hasn't created a monopoly for them. And unfortunately, I think in the family law system, um, not only do the laws favor um, th- th- these professionals charging very large amounts of money, but the, there's actual favoritism and collusion within the system where certain people that become friendly with the judges um, are favored and are given business that, um, uh, where there's no checks and balances on what they charge. You know, a, if a judge hires an attorney to represent your children in a custody battle, the parents have to pay that attorney. Whatever that attorney asks, the parents have to pay. And the judge is the only person who gets to decide whether those fees are acceptable or if the, the attorney's overcharging. Well, unfortunately, in our family law system, those attorneys can make campaign contributions to the very same judge who is, a, who is looking over their invoices, can throw fundraisers for the judge, can take them on junkets, can hire the judge's spouse to work in uh, the same law firm as the, uh, the hired attorney. And so they're, you know, the, it, it's just a setup for, um, if not outright corruption, then a level of uh, insider collusion uh, that would make you know Wall Street and the investment banks look like angels. There were so many times when I was watching this film that I, 
I almost yelled out, like, this can't possibly be true. It can't possibly be this way. And, and of course it is. Uh, and the, the piece that you just mentioned about how judges are uh, publicly elected and you can have attorneys donate to their campaign and then oftentimes those same attorneys get some, some pretty nice uh, rulings in their favor. Uh, and it's just this system, it's just so seedy and that has such potential for abuse. Uh, and the, the, the people who really are hurt by all of this are not only the parents getting the divorce, although sometimes they are part and parcel to this entire process of the fighting and the accusations, but it's the children. The, the children going through this, they're almost pawns in this entire process. They're used and sort of used against uh, each other. And, and uh, maybe you can talk a little bit of, sort of about how the children uh, are sort of used in this process. Yeah, this is the the greatest uh, tragedy uh, for the entire, and it's it's called family court, right? Do you think that they should be uh, concerned with how the children really end up? And they all use this platitude called the best interests of the child. The judge is supposed to be acting in the best interests of the child and and looking out for you know what the judge considers uh, the child's best interests. The problem is there is no definition for what the best interests mean. Uh, does it mean that your child should uh, read books or play football? Um, should your child uh, take piano lessons or join the cheerleading squad? Um, should your child spend most of their time with their friends learning to socialize or should they be doing their math homework? Um, these are, you know, difficult uh, questions to ask, and, and I think only the parents can make those decisions. To, to take a judge who has five or ten minutes to determine what is, quote-unquote, in the best interest of the child and then make life-changing decisions, not only for the parents but for the children, is absurd. And, um, you know, these, these judges will hire um, custody evaluators to try to determine, well, who is the better parent and direct the children uh, toward, to spend the majority of their time toward that parent. But I think, you know, the, the best parent is both parents and because both parents have different things to contribute. Of course, you know, I'm not talking about, uh, you know, a parent who's, who's physically abusive. I'm not talking about, you know, parents who might be sexually molesting their children. Those are crimes, and those are crimes that ha absolutely have to be dealt with. But I'm talking about just differences of opinion about, you know, what parents think is, is the best for the child. And nobody knows these children better than the parents do, and, and, and each parent has a different skill set that they can bring to the equation. And so these children really can benefit uh, from, uh, you know, exposure to both parents. Unfortunately, our system is set up in a way where everybody makes money, almost everybody makes money if the, if the children are uh, taken away from one parent and put predominantly in the care of the other parent. And uh, let me explain why I say that they make money. Well, first of all, the, um, you know, our system provides for something called child support, which is a stream of payments that go from uh, one parent to the other parent, depending upon um, essentially who makes a higher income is the payor and the person making lower income is the recipient. 
And um, the idea was that this was supposed to provide for the needs of the child when the child is in the care of the uh, lower earner. Well, the formulas, unfortunately, also factor in the amount of time that each parent gets to spend with the children. So if you have the children 100% of the time, you would receive twice as much child support as if compared to having the children half the time. And if you're the payer, payor, you would pay twice as much if you have the children none of the time as you would if you had the children half the time. Um, and so what this, and, and, and we're not talking about small amounts of money. We're not talking about, you know, $100 a month, $200 a month in most cases. We're talking about 30 to 60% of after-tax take-home pay. And that's a lot of money for most people, especially if they have to pay alimony on top of that and then try to support themselves in a new life. And so this causes parents to fight over how much time they have with the children because it dramatically influences their standard of living. And so what you get, you couple that dynamic with the adversarial system where people say bad things about each other in order to win, and what you get is a terrible battle between the parents that spills over to the children. Uh, and the way it spills over to the children is in terms of parents trying to lure the children over to their side by bribing the children, by um, disparaging the other parent, um, you know, involving the children in this conflict, whether they do it outright or they do it uh, subconsciously, there's a natural tendency for the parents to try to win, quote-unquote, win the children over to their side, and, th and that's not healthy for the children because they hear things about the other parent that should never be said. Um, they're lured with temptations that a, a healthy parent wouldn't be putting in front of them. They're uh, sent to uh, meetings with, quote-unquote, custody evaluators who ask them all kinds of probing questions about their parents. Sometimes uh, if, if the, the, the judge smells money, uh, on, that one of the parents has money, they'll hire an attorney to represent the children, and that attorney then meets with these children and asks them questions about their parents and their environment, comes and visits the home, um, and, and you know whatever these custody evaluators and attorneys have in terms of personal biases come and factor into which way they recommend to the judge uh, custody should go. The other um, area that promotes this polarization of parenting is that the federal government provides matching funds to the states for every dollar of child support and alimony that is collected by the states. And, you know, the, the intentions were originally good. Back in the 70s, not a lot of child support was being paid, and so the federal government provided these incentive dollars to the states to collect more and more child support and help them fund collection agencies that would go out and hunt down payors and, and try to get them to pay their child support. Um, unfortunately, what that has done is it has encouraged the states to keep collecting more and more levels of child support. Well, you can't collect child support unless you award child support or alimony in family court. If, if the awards were to go to zero, the collections would go to zero and the states would lose <clears throat> excuse me, this federal matching 
money. And, you know, the judges all know this. The judges' pensions are dependent on the states remaining solvent. And as we went through a couple of years ago, you know, there was a lot of question about the solvency of our states. And in fact, I think it's still a, a big issue. It's just not discussed as actively right now. And so, you know, any loss of significant amounts of revenue to the state is something that could cause the states to uh, default on their pensions. And so, you know, the entire court system um, is populated by people who expect to get retirement pensions uh, someday, and they, they don't want a, the state to go uh, bankrupt or, or to somehow have to give everybody a haircut on their pensions, and so they're incentivized to keep this gravy train going. And the only way you keep the gravy train going is if you assess that there's a, a disparity in income between the parents and you assign one of the parents the majority of custody time. If you were to give equal custody to both parents as a routine, um, the amount of child support being paid would drop dramatically and the federal matching funds would drop dramatically. So I think all around our system is set up to not encourage shared parenting and to financially incentivize battles that, that help the professionals and help the the judges and the other court employees who are part of the system. Let's fast forward to some point in the future where the system has been quote unquote fixed. What would a divorce look like? Say I'm married, I uh, let's say I have children, and now we're getting a divorce. What happens first? Well, I have. Um, I, I, I interviewed people over in Scandinavia to make the film, as well as many people in the United States. And I, I have to admit, I was um, very impressed by how they handle things in Scandinavia. And so rather than try to reinvent the wheel on my own and, and solve these problems from a hypothetical standpoint, my position is let's just adopt a model that seems to work so much better for 25 million people uh, elsewhere in the world. And these countries, you know, we're talking about Denmark, Norway, Iceland, and Sweden. They are, you know, um, highly successful countries, wealthy countries, democratic, free. Um, when studies of happiness are conducted, the Scandinavians are deemed to be some of the happiest people in the world. Um, and so, uh, and, and their children perform as well or better than United States children on, you know, uh, scholastic uh, aptitude tests and performance tests. Um, so, you know, we're not we're not talking about some uh, crazy, isolated, weird part of the world. It's it's really, you know, a very very impressive part of the world. And this is what they do. They, in order to get divorced, they just need to fill out a form, and they send it into their government. They could even do it on the internet. And if there's no um, dispute from the other spouse, they're automatically divorced. They do not have to go to family court. They don't have to hire a lawyer. They do have to divide their assets. If they can agree on that um, uh, amongst themselves, that's fine. If they are unsure, uh, they can go to an accountant who can help them divide the assets. And, um, or they could go to a mediator who, who can perhaps help them work through some issues where the assets are not clearly uh, valued, such as you know, the value of a business or the value of a, a degree, um, uh, you know, an educational degree. Uh, but rarely, almost never, I didn't meet anybody who either went to court or knew of someone who went to court in order to get divorced. Um, so uh, if you, but if you, if the other side does um, 
challenge the divorce and in, in terms of saying, well, I don't, I don't want to get divorced immediately. There may be a reconciliation. Well, the government then says, okay, you wait six months, and if there's a reconciliation, wonderful. If there's no reconciliation, then, again, you are divorced without having to go to court. And it's that simple. People criticize that. People have said to me, oh, we couldn't have that in our country. That the, the divorce rate would skyrocket if we were to make divorce that simple. Well, I looked at the facts, and I looked at the divorce ratio and the divorce ratio is the number of divorces per uh, 100 uh, marriages in a country. Um, and the reason one should look at it like that rather than the number of divorces per 100 population in a country is the marriage rates are different. And so we're essentially normalizing the data for the, rate, the different rates of marriage in different countries. And if we look at the number of divorces per 100 marriages in, in our country, and we could express that as a percentage, um, the United States, we have 53 divorces for every uh, 100 marriages, or 53%. Let's call it a divorce ratio. Um, when we look at the four countries in Scandinavia, Sweden has a 47%, Denmark 46%, Norway 44%, and Iceland 37% divorce ratio. All four of those countries where all you have to do is fill out a form in order to get divorced have a lower rate of divorce than we have in the United States, where in the United States, as we said, it's a $50 billion business. It's expensive. People go into bankruptcy. They go into foreclosure. They lose their children. It's a horrendous nightmare, and yet we do it more often um, per, per marriage than the, the Scandinavians do. So the argument that making divorce as easy as filling out a form would be promotive of divorce is not proven by the facts. Um, the other things that, that, I, that the Scandinavians do differently is they do not have statutory alimony once the divorce is finished. Um, so if two individuals are getting a divorce, that six-month waiting period, then there's typically some subsistence-level alimony paid if there's a disparity in, in wages. Um, but at the end of the six-month waiting period, when the divorce is finalized, there is no alimony on the law books. They can and often do enter into private agreements, prenuptial agreements or even postnuptial agreements that specify that there will be extended alimony if there's a divorce um, because they have chosen to adopt a traditional lifestyle of breadwinner homemaker uh, for a period of time. And so they provide for that alimony in a private agreement. But because it only affects a minority of the population, since in the majority of uh, families have two wage earners in Scandinavia, it's not something that's on the law books. It's just something that people agree to privately. Well, you know, we used to have a society where 80% of families had one wage earner or 70% had one wage earner and alimony was appropriate for the majority of marriages. If you look at the statistics today, though, only 20% of married couples have a single wage earner, and the other 80% have two wage earners. Two wage earner families are, are the norm today, and so this concept of alimony is, is really was appropriate 50 years ago, but no longer pertains to the majority of relationships. And so I think we should look at the Scandinavian model and perhaps adopt their model where we make alimony something that's subject to private agreement, to either prenuptial or postnuptial agreements, but don't deploy it in every divorce. And the reason it's bad to deploy this concept of alimony in every divorce is because in most cases, 
alimony is not awarded. The judges award alimony 15 to 20 percent of marriages, but the rest of the time they don't they don't award alimony. Yet the lawyers are obligated to investigate whether alimony is appropriate or not. Even if they go into it knowing it's not appropriate, they still will do all of the investigation. All you know, turn in your W-2s, your your tax returns, your credit card statements, your telephone bills. They investigate everything, and that's a very expensive process in order to end up with a, a zero at the end of the day. And so by making alimony something that's subject to private agreement rather than uh, statute, we, you know, people will save an enormous amounts of time and money. And by pre-negotiating these issues uh, ahead of time, I think marriages will be better off for it. People will know what to expect if, if you know, two couples are both wage earners and then they have children and they decide that one of them is going to stay at home. If the provider spouse is unwilling to provide for alimony, uh, if there's a divorce, uh, maybe you shouldn't be having children with that person. Maybe that's not the right person for you. So I think it's it's healthier all around. And so I, I understand and agree that prenuptial agreements, premarital agreements uh, can be a really important tool uh, before you get married. It spells out uh, the assets that you have. It spells out the assets your soon-to-be spouse has. It even discusses which property will remain separate versus marital. Uh, and you can even have things in there that, that talk about alimony. Th- these are all things that occur before you get married. Uh, and some of the things that you're talking about uh, is after you're married, coming up with these with with these arrangements. And you're saying that in Scandinavia that that often happens and it happens amicably and and they do quite well. Uh, but can't we do that now, even under this system that we have? Couldn't I, my my wife and I, <clears throat> create a, a, a post nuptial agreement where we determine these kinds of things? Like it, it, it it's possible today for this to occur. Yes and no. So yes, you can have a prenuptial agreement today. And, um, you know, the hopes between the parties is that the, this prenuptial agreement will, will be definitive and will rule going forward. Unfortunately, because of our culture and because the courts profit so much from, from adversarial fights, they can set aside a prenuptial agreement. They can say that it's invalid because it's, and, and this is just up to the judge, it's unconscionable. It doesn't provide enough for one party or the other. And so the judge could simply throw it out. Or it could be thrown out on an allegation that it was, um, you know, brought to the to the wedding chapel and the person was told to either sign it or or forget it. The wedding's off. Or they signed it um, after having two glasses of champagne one night and they weren't thinking clearly. Um, or they signed it under uh, undue stress. Um, and all of these excuses are up to the judge to decide whether they want to accept the excuse or reject the excuse. So unfortunately, in, in modern-day America, you cannot be assured that a prenuptial agreement is going to be enforced by the particular judge that you get. And the particular judge that you get is going to have you know, their typical biases in one direction or the other, and you never know. Some judges might rigidly enforce prenuptial agreements. Others might throw most of them out. And it's really up to uh, the judge's discretion. The other thing is that you cannot pre-negotiate child support or child custody in right. the United States. It's, it's simply against the law. 
Um, and so if you try to, um, I mean, you can pre-negotiate it, and if that, um, if, if the provisions that you put into your prenuptial agreement comply with the child enforcement standard, child support enforcement standards and the, the, the guidelines, uh, then it will probably hold up. But all that gets you is whatever, you know, the courts say anyway. And the way it, the way our, um, child support system is set up now, you can go back and ask for a modification of child support at any time. No matter what kind of agreement you signed in the past, that agreement really is only works, only operates until the day that someone challenges it. And then there's no stigma associated with challenging these agreements. Um, the person can say, well, you know, um, when we agreed on that dollar amount, I was working, now I'm not working, I want more money. Or a person could say, when I agreed on that amount, I was making $100,000 a year, I lost my job, now I'm not making anything, I don't want to have to pay that much anymore. And at any time, the judge can not only adjust the amount of child support, but the judge can also deem a custody arrangement. And it could be that two parents agreed on 50-50 custody in the past, and one of them goes into a court for a modification, and they come out of court with either no time with their children or 100% of the time with their children or 80-20 or 70-30. You never know what's going to happen. It's entirely up to the judge. And I've talked to many, many people who just went into court with something simple like, my spouse is not delivering the children to me uh, on the days that I'm supposed to have the children. Your Honor, would you please enforce that? And they end up with no children because the thing spun out of control. The other side hired an attorney who knew the judge. The judge hired a custody evaluator who he or she was friends with. The custody evaluator had their own prejudices or their own agenda or was being paid off by one of the law firms. And suddenly, you don't have your children. You're not allowed to visit your children. Or, uh, and that's that's truly the part of, of your film that scared the hell out of me. I, I'm a father, and the idea that some stranger with a gavel can take my daughter from me, oh, it, it just uh, it, it scared me, and it just pissed me off. Um, it, but this idea, the, the court system, the family law system, I, I think was constructed at least initially in a way to protect the to, to protect either the one of the spouses or the children. Um, and so when you talk about minimizing alimony or um, some of these other ideas, it, I'm sure you've gotten a lot of maybe negative feedback from family law attorneys or others who say, listen, we, we fight for our clients because we're trying to protect them. We're, we have the best interests of our client at heart, and if, if you make some of these changes, then it's going to go back to the, the wild, wild west days where you, people could take advantage of, of their spouse, take advantage of their children, could basically do whatever they want. But we've got these rules and these laws now, and some, of course they don't always work, but for the most part they, they do work. Um, what, what would you say to that? Well, it's it's a good argument, and I would say that you know most attorneys are good people, and they are trying to do what's best for their client according to the law. I think the problem is essentially with the law, in that it it was set up for you know the madman era, the 1960s, 1950s. Um, it's not set up for modern day America, and um, you know all of these things about there being a, a homemaker and uh, a breadwinner. Are no longer applicable to 80% of American families. That we we now have two wage earners. 
more women are in college today than men. Um, women are entering the workforce en masse. Uh, President Obama recently said that it's unfortunate that women earn 77% of what men earn, and I agree with that. Uh, however, if you dig into the statistics, you'll find out that the reason many women earn less is they elect to earn less because they work fewer. They choose to work fewer hours, or they choose to go into an occupation that, that pays less. If you look at same job description, same educational background, there's no discrimination uh, again, between men and women. It's 100%. And if you simply look at women between the ages of 25 and 35, regardless of educational background or job description, they earn 94% of what men make. So that whole idea that you know women are the um, class of uh, individuals that don't earn much, that stay at home, was an idea that comes from 50 years ago. It's tradition in the United States, but it's a tradition that's waning. And I think the, the laws need to be updated to reflect modern society. Of course we want to protect people who have no way of, of earning a living. But if someone does have a way of earning a living, we shouldn't be um, entitling them to sit uh, around and do nothing or encourage them. There are people who I interviewed that said, well, I, I couldn't go back to work because if I did, I would lose my alimony or, or my child support would be reduced. And so it didn't make any sense because I would actually earn less uh, working at a job than I was collecting every month in the mail. Well, we shouldn't have a system like that. We should have a system that encourages people to get back into the workforce, to get back into society, to provide value for our society instead of waiting for the check to come in the mail. And so uh, when the majority of Americans are two wage earners and the system no longer applies to us, I think we need to revise it. And again, I look to the Scandinavians because they have child support in Scandinavia, but it's a fixed amount per child. It doesn't vary with income of the parents. And what the Scandinavians believe is, okay, if a child needs money for food and clothing, then let's provide that to that child. But we are not going to buy one of the parents a Ferrari just because the other parent is a high wage earner. And in the United States, there's this argument, well, then the child is going to be going back and forth between two different kinds of households. One of the households is going to be wealthy. The other one is not going to be wealthy. I say, sort that out in your alimony argument. Sort that out in your prenuptial agreement. If you are marrying someone for their money, and it's important to you that you get a big piece of that money as part of this arrangement, then put that in the agreement. But let's not have society support that as, as part of our ethics uh, or as part of our, our culture because I believe that is, um, breeds a, a spirit and a uh, philosophy of entitlement. And I think for the most part, uh, when people don't earn what they get, they don't appreciate what they get, and they don't work hard to achieve. And I think that's, that's backwards. It's not a you know, philosophy we should be embracing anymore in the United States. And we should embracing both our men and our women to work hard, to get educated, and to do great things for our society. Uh, so, again, the Scandinavian model encourages people to get back into the workforce, and if they, if they did make a sacrifice for a number of years, then that's part of a negotiated agreement between the parties, and there's a transitional alimony provided for them, but there's no automatic, tenden there's no automatic principle in Scandinavia that you get rich uh, by having children that if you happen to get pregnant by some you know, wealthy basketball player, that you're set for life. That's, that doesn't exist in Scandinavia, and I don't think it should exist in the United States. Yeah, I, I think with the typical scenario of a young couple, they get married, they don't have much money, uh, they both start working. Maybe we'll just, in this example, use the man. 
uh, maybe goes back back uh, back to school, gets a better degree, starts making more money, um, and now all of a sudden, ten years later, uh, let's say they don't even have a child, uh, but the 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 family income is maybe four hundred thousand dollars a year, and she only makes maybe fifty thousand dollars a year. What do what would the Scandinavians do, or, or what maybe do you propose would happen in this country if they were to get divorced? Uh, I think under this current scenario, they're looking at really income equality even after a divorce. Uh, but what are you suggesting that she take her fifty thousand and and go off and and live her own life, and and he take the three fifty and do the same thing? So you're saying that these people didn't have children; they both continued to work. One earned fifty thousand, the other earned three hundred and fifty. They were partners for a while, but after ten years, they're separating. Should yes. there be a balancing of incomes? No, I don't think there should be, unless they negotiated it privately, and that's something that they can talk about. Um, the person earning fifty thousand a year could say, "Hey, you know, you're going to expose me to all these wonderful things that a three hundred and fifty thousand dollar income can generate. I'm going to get used to it." I'm not going to be able to go back to fifty thousand a year. I'm going to I'm going to have to go back to developing another set of friends, driving a different kind of car, um, eating different kinds of foods. I don't want to do that. So if we're going to be partners, then we're going to be partners, and you're going to make sure that I'm able to continue this lifestyle going forward for a certain number of years. I know that's not part of our culture right now to talk about these things. It's not polite to talk about the possibility that a marriage may end. But in fact, fifty-three percent of them end. That's those are the data we have in the United States. You have to be a fool going into a situation thinking that you're going to be part of that 47% that survives, knowing that the other party can trigger a divorce at any time, regardless. No, no fault. That's what we have is no fault in the United States. So you could be the perfect, perfect marriage partner, perfect spouse, and yet the other side could just decide one day they don't want you, and. So if if I were that fifty thousand dollar earner and I wanted to make sure that this transition to a better you know higher standard of living uh, was something that wasn't going to be pulled out from under me, I would say great. I'm all for this thing, but I want some type of agreement that that specifies what happens afterwards. And the other spouse might say, I'm sorry, but you know I don't want to do that. And then you know, okay, I don't want to marry that person. You avoid the trauma that we get into today, where. Um, you go into it with all the best intentions, and then at the end of ten years, you're totally surprised by the way the other side is acting and behaving. You don't understand it. It wasn't what you anticipated. And and how do you resolve it? You have to hire a lawyer. You have to go to court. You have to take depositions. You have to appear for multiple mo- motions. They make accusations about you know your your various habits or propensities or whatever. It's a horrible, horrible way that it all of it could have not all of it, but most of it could have been avoided by agreeing to these things ahead of time. But by avoiding that discussion, by not having the talk before you got married, now you're just subject to a a, a terrible money-consuming, uh, uh, happiness-consuming governmental-run system. And I absolutely think it makes sense to have these discussions before you get married. What often happens, and in, in my example, they, they started off at the same foot. You know, they, they, they were in college together. They, they both made no money. But over time, you, you saw this income disparity of the man making more than the woman. And then at that point, it, they haven't had the discussion yet. Uh, because when they started out, they were they were equals. Um, so under under the 
the proposed sort of fix to the to the family law system it's it sounds like it's almost what you go into the marriage with is what you what you leave the marriage with and it and it's much more of a a marriage of emotion and love and less a, of a marriage of of finances unless you want to make it about finance and you have that prerogative by negotiating a prenuptial agreement with your partner but if that but if the marriage is truly about love and it's not about finances if it truly is and you don't care about finances and you don't care that your $50,000 lifestyle is going to go up and then come back down again then you don't need to deal with these issues but if money is an important part of it then get that talk talk that through up front and, and this you, is a, this is exactly one of the things i've been sort of thinking about for some time uh is almost forcing every soon to be married couple to have a prenup and when when people think of prenuptial agreements they think well it's it's really just for the wealthy and for the most part that's that's typically the case that prenuptial agreements can be 10 20 30 60 100,000 dollars to create in in some cases so for the average person they think well the prenup that's absurd i don't have enough money to do this why even consider it but i think there could be a case made to have some sort of a statutory obligation that when you're signing that marriage certificate that there's also been a disclosure of assets uh, as well as figuring out what happens if there is a divorce exactly some of the things that you're talking about here you, you talk about it up front and beforehand rather than once you're already married and it, it's almost too late at that point I, I, I agree and I think that's a, that's a very good idea um, I, I really think that people who are considering marriage should have the benefit of some type of counselor who, who's seen it all, who understands these issues, and walks them through some of the possibilities that might happen in the future and advises them, well, and if you feel this way, then I recommend that we put this provision into the agreement or we check this box. Or if you don't feel that way, then we won't check that box. And, you know, yeah, listing one's assets is obviously a part of that. I think that probably needs to be done every year so that it's clear when assets have been commingled, they're now marital. If they haven't been commingled, they'd be kept separate. That's separate. And what this does is it it's full disclosure to both sides. You're not the way we operate in America today is neither party really knows everything that's going on in the other party's life and in the other party's finances. And if finances are important to you, you need information. So by having the obligation to disclose the assets um, in, in one of these uh, documents on a yearly basis will bring up the discussion. People are going to say, Joe, you're crazy. That's not promotive of a healthy relationship. Um, but I, 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 I argue the reverse. I say that you know if, if the marriage is only about love and it's about love and family and all that, then you don't really care about these things. If, but if you do care about these things, you shouldn't be ashamed of bringing it up. I mean, everybody needs a roof over their head. They need a way to pay for their food and clothing and transportation. And we need to talk about these things. And unfortunately, our culture today is based in a culture where the percentage of divorces was you know, less than 5%. And so we didn't need to talk about these things because everybody stayed married for life. But the, the, the sad reality of modern day America is that 53% of marriages end up in divorce. We need to talk about these things. The majority of Americans who get married need to talk about these things because our system is not doing a good job 
at settling it retrospectively. And I it totally, really... totally agree. I think the the idea for many people is that if they start talking about their assets and a prenuptial agreement, that it's somehow going to harm the relationship. And and like you, I would argue it's just the opposite. If you can talk about your finances openly and talk about what if this happens or what if that happens, I think it it is very conducive to a stronger relationship because many of my clients are are what the family lawyers term the outspouse. So the outspouse is the the spouse that really wasn't involved in the finances. They didn't pay the bills, they didn't do the taxes, they weren't involved with the investments or the attorneys. And when they get divorced, they are sort of the out spouse. They they they're not used to or don't have the skills to sort of handle their own finances. And and it's really tragic because you'll have grown adults with a lot of money and they just don't know, have the practical skills or the knowledge to deal with this. And I think if there were discussions before the divorce and, and, and these annual discussions about looking at their assets, looking at their income that they were required to have, they would be much more knowledgeable and, and I think the relationship would be better off as a result. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it'd be, it'd be, it's crazy if, you, if you're going to go into a marriage and you don't know if your partner wants to have children or not. It's insane. Well, the same is true here. If you don't know what your partner thinks about the event, you know, the possibility that this marriage might end and how, how is everybody going to get taken care of? You know, I think people need to go through this even for just basic home economic reasons. It is not easy for one person to support two households. It's, it's impossible in, in many cases. And I think couples would realize before giving up one of those incomes, um, they would realize that it's going to be impossible to maintain the lifestyle that they've grown accustomed to on just one income when they, if, if they live in the two homes. You know, when you live together in one home, you share, uh, there's so many variable expenses that get, you know, consolidated. And so, you know, you don't have to pay two rents. You don't have to pay two utility bills. Your, your food bill is not twice what it was when you were living independently. There are many of those factors uh, called economies of scale that occur when, you, when two people live under the same roof. But once you take them apart and put them under separate roofs, the, the, the expenses just go back up again. And to, do, you know, to go back to two roofs with two incomes is, is, is not so hard. But to go, to go to two roofs with one income is almost impossible. And I don't think people realize that. And I think if they had to list their assets each year and look at their incomes and look at what might happen if they were to separate, they would either not quit their job so readily or they would make certain provisions. They'd be sure that they're taken care of afterwards with some kind of a insurance policy or other income stream, or they would just simply decide that they can't afford to get divorced and stay together. Now, what has your response been to the film? What, what, what are people saying about it? Well, um, I've heard everything from I'm the, the next messiah to I'm, you know, the devil in, uh, you know, it's, it's all over the spectrum. You know, obviously, some of the family law prote- practitioners uh, uh, don't like the suggestion that their um, profession is, is potentially unnecessary and that it could be solved another way like they do in Scandinavia. Um, other people have uh, thanked me profusely for making the film for bringing to light 
um, a dysfunctional system and an anachronism that um, you know we need to take a fresh look at and come up with better solutions for modern society. So you know, as a friend of mine said, um, uh, you know where where you stand depends on where you sit, and and that's the reaction I've heard. And you have you have a pretty active Facebook page. What are some of the response from the the just the average everyday viewers who are watching this? Well, uh, you know, our Facebook uh, followers, and we have about 12,000 of them now in, in the three months since the film came out, or four months since the film came out, um, are, and I, I don't mean any disrespect, and I love them, and I appreciate all of their comments, and I completely sympathize with them, but they are, um, let's call them, many of them, the walking wounded. People have been through the system. They weren't destroyed completely by the system, but they came pretty close to that destruction, and they know everything that we're talking about because they've been through it they've seen it there's no doubt that our film is authentic there are 12,000 people out there commenting on our Facebook page describing this happening in all 50 states of the United States in and and the same stories are repeating themselves over and over again about the custody evaluator being crooked the judge showing favoritism appointing guardians at litem that you can't look at their bills, of people losing their children for, for just saying something nasty to the judge or for standing up for their rights. It just goes on and on and on, the same kinds of stories over and over again. So um, I would say, you know, the, the film is fully validated in terms of, you know, pointing out a real problem in the United States. Um, but what I'd like to do now is reach out to those people who are, you know, uh, either haven't been through the system or, um, are, are contemplating getting married or contemplating getting divorced and saying, you know, we do not have a good solution in our country for the 53 percent of marriages that today are going to end up in divorce and we need a better solution. And I would like to get the attention of more of those people so that, you know, we can rationally reform the laws to make things better for for the United States. And I think if we make things better in the law and make divorce less onerous, um, we could potentially lower our divorce rate by not making it this huge uh, lottery that, you know, I went into a casino in Las Vegas um, a couple of months ago, and I couldn't believe it. I saw a slot machine with Judge Judy's picture on it, and it said, <laughs> play play the something like the lawsuit lottery or the lawsuit uh, slot machine. Wow. And to me, that was the epitome of what our modern court system is. It's a lottery. It's a, it, you go in there and you pull the lever and you hope to win the jackpot. Most of the time you lose because the casino takes most of your money. But every once in a while you win and that temptation that you're going to win the jackpot is what drives people to go toward it. I think we need to eliminate that, that pathological motivation in the United States and get to a more um, logical and empathetic system. And what can people do? I watched it at the end of it. I, I was, you know, I was on fire about it, but I didn't know what what's what was the next step. What, what should I, as a viewer, do to help change this system? I mean, it seems a, a quite a daunting task. Well, help us out. Um, you know, I'm not asking for money. Uh, we're doing this all, funding it ourselves, because we'd like to see some some reform take place. I'm uh, organizing a reform conference uh, November 15th and 16th in uh, Washington, D.C., where I'd like to hear from people who want to speak uh, or people who simply want to attend to, to maybe contribute to some ideas on how we can reform the system. 
Um, I would uh, so come to our Facebook page or our uh, particular website, divorcecorp.com. And uh, on that page, there's in the menu, there's a reform page, and just sign up to our email list, and we'll keep you informed about you know various uh, reform efforts going on around the country. And uh, you know we need political support. I'm not asking for money. I just want political support of people saying, yeah, there's something wrong with the system, and we need to change it, and we need to get that message out to our political leaders. And so eventually, we're going to be asking for our followers to do a letter writing campaign to Congress to the various state legislatures and try to get reform of these these antiquated laws. Excellent. So the first step is really simply to go to Divorce Corp. And that, again, is divorcecorp.com and sign up. I mean, it couldn't be a, an easier call to action on uh, on the listener's part here. Uh, so with that, I, I, will, I will leave this. Joe, thank you again for... Exposing the divorce industry is the tagline for the film, and and I and I really believe you've done that successfully. And now it's, I think, the harder process, and that is actually changing it. And uh, and I know you've got some amazing ideas about how specifically to change it. And I look forward to bringing you on again and, and maybe talking about those in in more detail. Well, you're most welcome, Robert. I appreciate the opportunity to talk, and, and any time in the future that you want to uh, explore this further, um, I'm available. Thanks so much. You're welcome. This was Sudden Wealth Radio. If you feel overwhelmed because of a recent windfall or are looking for better strategies to grow your assets, Robert and his firm have developed a national reputation for providing financial planning and investment management to clients globally. They are more than happy to answer any questions, big or small. So if you have a question about how they work or a question about your own situation, go to www.pacificawealth.com or email Robert directly at robert at pacificawealth.com.